What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Let's grab our Bibles. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. Uh, we're actually picking up in the middle of a sentence uh, in verse 5, but what I'd like to do is just kind of roll it back to verse 1 so we can pull in the whole context here. So we're going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8 together. As you find that in your Bibles, let's go ahead and stand up for God's Word, as we know, is holy and inspired and inerrant and infallible, the very Word of the only true and living God. So let's listen to it as the Word of God. Now let's start in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, and verse 5, this will begin our text this morning for preaching, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no, that no one trusts, uh, transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger and all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness, therefore Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so we're continuing on a discussion on holiness that we started last week. This is technically part two of the sermon, Holiness and and Honor, that I started last week. And I want to brainstorm with you, if we can do this for a moment, uh, the idea of what holiness might actually look like. Let's just say culturally. What, What would our culture say that holiness looks like? Suppose we were to go out into the streets or the coffee shops and and begin to do a survey and say, hey, we're we're whiteboarding up here. Uh, We're whiteboarding. Give, Give us examples of what holiness looks like. What would the culture say? we're talking about in that word. Well, they might uh, mention maybe the, the movie Footloose. You remember Footloose where uh, the, the pastor, the father, he's stern and he doesn't want any fun happening in his town, right? And so maybe somebody would say the pastor from Footloose and we write that down as an example of, of holiness, let's say. Or maybe somebody might say the character Ned Flanders from The Simpsons who's like the one a faithfully religious guy in the show, and yet, and yet we know he's actually pretty passive and wimpy as an example of, 
of what holiness might look like. And so maybe then somebody says, well, maybe it's that, it's that evangelical politician who's whose career is just a quagmire of, of scandal after scandal after scandal. And before we know it, this list of supposed examples of holiness isn't really looking like holiness at all, is it? At least not as we understand it biblically. And then maybe somebody says something like, well, how about a, how about a Tibetan monk who's kind of out, he's removed from the whole world, he's out on some mountain out there and he's practicing the martial arts like in the movies and we say okay okay that maybe that's not so bad but that's not even christian right that's not even a, a christian definition of holiness and so before we realize it uh, it certainly looks like we're talking about the idea of being holier than thou rather than what the scripture says holy to the lord which is actually what we're aiming at and so my fear is that our, our culture has entirely misperceived or a misapprehension of what we're even talking about when we use the biblical terminology of holiness. And so what I did last week, I labored, I tried as hard as I could to present a different kind of a definition what, for what holiness is. And if you recall from last week's sermon, I defined holiness as a beauty of the soul, right? I described holiness as soul beauty, soul deep beauty as the individual pursues God and Christ and a charity and mercy and humility and meekness and all these things. And I chose those words intentionally, the beauty of the soul, because of what I wanted to do is convey a more positive, a more winsome, a more attractive definition of what holiness might actually be such that we might actually aspire to it rather than being repelled from it as in our cultural understandings of holier than thou. Okay, so I tried really hard last week to give you something better than just holier than thou. And so this morning, I want to continue on that theme. Uh, but instead, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears and I'm going to change the definition. Okay, I'm not setting aside anything I said last week. But I want to simply add to it and look at holiness from a different perspective. So if you remember, one of the examples I gave you last week is like a bride adorning herself, being prepared for her husband on her wedding day, this idea of beauty or the attraction of, of holiness of the soul. This morning, I want to switch metaphors and move to a militant metaphor. And I'm going to define holiness this morning as war. Holiness is the war of the soul to subdue and to conquer its enemies. So there's my starting place this morning. Holiness is war. War between who? Well, that's the very question we want to resolve this morning. So if you look at this passage in context here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's go ahead and just frame up exactly why we're tackling this section here, or rather why Paul gives this section here, because we know that in, in the end of chapter 4, and in the beginning of chapter 5, we're going to come to the primary doctrinal teaching of this epistle. And the doctrinal teaching that Paul is going to proceed with is an eschatological discussion about the return of Christ. And this is what we're excited for in 1 Thessalonians. We can't wait. I can't wait. You can't wait to get to the stuff about the return of the Lord or the day of the Lord. But the point here, remember, is not that we would get our end times chart all perfectly situated, so we've got the Antichrist in the right place, and the tribulation at the right place, and whatever the millennium is, and the rapture, the return of Christ. Paul's point here is that our hearts and our lives would be ready for the return of the Lord. 
That's why this important discussion on holiness precedes the eschatological sections about the doctrine of the return of Christ. It's very important. So we're not skipping over it, and we're certainly not going to rush through it. Next week, Pastor Dave will finish up this portion on verses 9 through 12 as he looks again to the topic of love. And so we see that it's love, and then holiness, and then love again, and then finally we'll be prepared to discuss then the return of Christ. So this morning, let me give you the outline for what I'm going to attempt to do with you. First of all, we're going to talk about the nature of this war. Remember, holiness is war. And so we're going to talk first about the nature of the war. Second of all, then, I want to mention the casualties of this war. It is certainly not a victimless war, and we're going to see that as we move through the text. And then third, I want to mention victory at all costs is what we're going to be aiming at as Christian holy warriors. So let's start in verse 4, because we're picking it up in the middle of the sentence, and I want to make sure we're, we're getting this contextually here. So let's talk first about the nature of this war. Look at verse 4 in your Bible. Paul says that each one of you may know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now you'll recall from last week that I said that the word body there in the Greek is actually and literally the word vessel. Okay, a vessel contains the soul. The body contains the soul here. So there's a lot going on here in this verse. But then Paul says in verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. So he gives a counterexample, a negative example. How are you going to control your body in holiness and honor? Well, negatively, not like the passion of the lust of the Gentiles who do not know God. So you're not going to act like them, surely, because they don't even know God. They don't even have the right starting place. Now Paul uses the word here, the ethne, the Gentiles. Now he's not making necessarily a a Jew versus Gentile distinction here. That's not why he chooses the word Gentiles because Thessalonica is a primarily Gentile city anyways. Paul is rather speaking here of the distinction between the way those who know God live their lives and the way those who do not know God live their lives. Namely, that we're not subject to the passion of lust like the Gentiles. And so Paul is saying here there is a war in your soul. It's a war that's internal. It's a war that you have to face. Because who are the combatants here in verse 5? Well, it's you versus yourself in some sense, isn't it? It's you versus you. It's you submitting and subduing the very passions and lusts that exist in both you and those who do not know God. Now, let's, let's let's be very clear about this. There's something hugely significant different between you and the unbelievers. What is it? Is it that that we don't have passions and lusts? No, clearly we do. That's why we have to control them, verse 4. The difference between us and those who do not know God is that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, right? So therein is the war. Paul will often talk about the flesh on one hand, which is the remnants of our sinful nature, that now coexists with this new life that we have, this regenerated, this born-again life, this Holy Spirit-filled life that we have. And because we are sort of this, this strange mix of flesh and now the Spirit of God living in us, the result of that is going to necessarily be conflict within you. The war is in you. 
Uh, Paul is not saying that we don't have passions and lusts. It'd be nice if that were true. We're not talking about some sort of Wesleyan state of perfectionism here where we no longer have to battle those things. The reality is you'll continue to battle these things until the day that you die or Christ comes back, whichever comes first. And so that's why last week I I chose to read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I'm going to do again right now. Westminster chapter 13, paragraph 2, describes this conflict with militant language. Listen again. So what I read to you last week, this sanctification, says the divines, is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. Frustratingly so, right? It's imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Now, the Gentiles or the unbelievers, as Paul describes them, they don't have that battle. They're not fighting that fight. Why not? Because while they have the flesh, they don't have the spirit. But you are different. You have the spirit. Therefore, this war, according to the Westminster Confession, is A, continual, meaning that every day there's another skirmish, every day another fight. Every single morning you wake up, get ready for the battle again. You're going to fight again against your own passions and your own lusts. And not only is the war continual, but it's irreconcilable, which means there can be no peace treaty. Okay, There's not going to be a disarmament here. There's not going to be a treaty that is forthcoming where your spirit is going to agree with the flesh that, okay, we can compromise here. It doesn't work that way. It's continual war. It's irreconcilable war. And the term war itself, doesn't it? It conveys a sense of utter seriousness and, grav- and gravity here. This is, this is meaningful, this conflict. There are going to be victors, and there are going to be those who are conquered. Who's going to win? Now again, I, I'd want to stress here that this is an internal war. That's the nature of it. It's within We're not talking about taking up actual weapons here. I think that should be abundantly clear because what we're trying to submit here is what Paul calls the pathos, the passions. Now, it's funny that the word passion is almost completely reversed its meaning today because um, today, if we describe somebody as being passionate, usually that's a compliment, right? Like if you walked out of here today and said, that's a passionate preacher, I'd say, thank you, I'm trying like, yes, I want to be a passionate preacher. But here, passions are, are very negative, aren't they? Because these are the urges. These are the darker desires here. We're not talking about a passionate singer or a passionate artist here. It's not using this word complimentary. We're using it in a very dark and sort of a sinister way here. The passions of, of, of the inner person are those darker desires which are contrary to the godly life. These are the things that must be fought and, and suppressed within the mind, within the heart, within the conscience, within the attention, within the affections. This has nothing to do with being holier than thou. This has everything to do with being holy unto the Lord. And it's an internal fight. And this is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 is so furious with the Pharisees. Because they get this exactly wrong. In fact, flip with me if you will to Matthew chapter 23. I want to show you how they've completely reversed 
the battle. Instead of an inward fight, they've made it an outward showmanship. And it disgusts the Lord. In Matthew chapter 23, we have a series of seven woes. Where Jesus says time after time to the Pharisees, Woe unto you, woe unto you. Why is Jesus furious with the religious people here? Why is he so upset? Clearly the Lord is, is burning with a holy zeal for the glory of God here. And he lashes out on the Pharisees with these seven woes. Look at verse 25 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. In other words, where's the war? It's not outward. It's not what you're trying to convey to everybody else so that they think of you in certain ways. The war has to be inside. Jesus says the inside of the cup and the plate has to be dealt with first and then the outside. And then look again in verse 27. Same thing here, different metaphor. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What do you want, Pharisees? Do you want to be holier than thou? Or do you want to be holy unto the Lord? The fight is inward. And and that doesn't mean, uh, don't, don't misunderstand me, that there won't be times where, yes, we have to fight the cultural battles. We do. We will fight the cultural wars of ideas and philosophy, right? We, we will have something to say to this godless generation in which we live about every given topic. Christians have a voice. I'm not suggesting that we go quiet. No, far from it. What I am suggesting, though, is if you want to have any credibility in the cultural wars, you better be in the fight, at least, in the internal battle for godliness. And so the nature of this war is largely, if not primarily, inward first before it is external. That's number one. Let's move to number two. The casualties of this war. Let's go on to verse six. Main text. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now notice here how Paul then shifts the repercussions of this internal fight to the outward collateral damage that is possible if we don't subdue the passions and the lusts. You see that? Internal fight spills outward pretty quickly though. And that's why this is a war that has plenteous collateral damage or the casualties of war. Now, you know what I mean by collateral damage or the casualties of war, right? Because every war has collateral damage. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, let's say we're going to try to uh, bomb a terrorist, right? Well, so sometimes when we do that, what happens is we inadvertently uh, afflict a neighborhood or a school or a hospital. The shrapnel explodes in the wrong place, so there's... There's victims in war. And this happens no matter how ethically you try to wage a war, and we try as hard as we can, I think, in this nation to to wage war ethically, as far as I know. 
Um, but in every war, there are, there are casualties of collateral damage where non-combatants are affected by what happens on the battlefield. Everybody grant that? Does that make sense? Right? And so what Paul is saying here is that in your internal fight for holiness against the passions and the lust of the flesh, what happens is that, verse 6, sometimes you transgress and you wrong your brother in the matter. And so his life becomes affected by your failure to suppress the passions. How so? Well, think of like, sin is like an oil spill. Its tendency is is to seep outward. Its tendency is to afflict. Its tendency is to bring damage outwardly. And certainly that is true. As much as we want to think, Christians, that my sin is just between me and God, and wouldn't that be nice if it were so, The reality is our sin tends to afflict and to hurt those who are closest to us the most. Let me give you some examples. Okay, so let's say you've got a temper, right? Anybody got a temper? Don't raise your hand. Maybe elbow the person next to you if they got a temper. Well, you say, well, that's just me and God. This is between me and the Lord. No, it's not. How so? Because your temper is going to, it's going to lash out against your wife. Your temper is going to lash out against your children. It's they who are going to suffer from your temper, right? The same thing is true with practically every sin. Let's say say your sin is drunkenness, right? I don't have anything against wine per se. The Bible commends it at times, but drunkenness is a sin. And you say, well, that's just between me and God. No, it's not. Because even if you're just, just slacking off in the chair for hours and hours, drinking beer after beer or glass after glass, who's being neglected? Probably your child. You could be reading books with her, for goodness sakes. Uh, or, or let's say pornography. That's just between me and the screen. No, it's not. Uh, did you forget that the images conveyed on that screen are actual human beings on the other side? Like that person is somebody's daughter. That's somebody's sister. That's maybe somebody's future wife. Do you think that the industry is harmless? Of course it's not harmless. Don't you see the connection between pornography and human trafficking? There is no sin at least any that I can think of, that doesn't afflict collateral damage on the people around us. And so Paul says here, if you're not motivated to fight, at least for yourself, shouldn't you at least be motivated so that you don't damage your brother? Go with me in the Old Testament. Let's do this and be somewhat quick about it. Go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, a very well-worn story that we know quite uh, quite intimately about David and Bathsheba. Go back, go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is a story of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David, the man after God's own heart, says the book of Acts. Writer of the, of the, of the Psalms. What, what a godly example this is, and yet in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we have one of the most obvious examples of the kind of collateral damage, the kind of the casualties of war that take place, and David's failure to wage the internal war of holiness. Notice in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, that's a hint, David, get off the couch. That's a hint, David. You ought to be fighting this time. You ought to be defending the borders. And yet, he's not out for battle. Instead, what happens is it says that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and it happened late one afternoon when David arose 
from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now you can almost imagine the war happening in David's heart right here, right? Can you almost imagine this? Uh, Here he is thinking to himself, I'm the king. I've already fought the Ammonites. I've already beat back the Syrians. I already defeated the Philistines a couple of times. How many times do I need to do this? Uh, I deserve a break. I let my men go out and fight today. I'm, I'm taking a day off, he says. I'm taking a whole spring off. And so David goes up on the roof, and he sees this beautiful woman, and he begins to rationalize this in his mind. Look at her out there, so gorgeous and pretty. And if it wasn't for me, maybe she wouldn't have the freedom to be out there. And so he begins to rationalize. He begins to talk himself into it. Instead of being in the fight, David is surrendering. He's waving the white flag to his passions and lusts. And so now he begins to get other people involved. He sends out some servants. Go bring her to me. Now they're involved. Now they're complicit in this. And Bathsheba comes, and we know the rest of the story. And David, uh, David breaks her marriage vows with Uriah. And then what does David do? He tries to cover it up. He tries to manipulate Uriah. Now Uriah is being afflicted by David's sin. And so what does David do to cover all this up? He sends them out to the most dangerous and precarious place on the battlefield where Uriah himself, Bathsheba's actual husband, and some of his other in the platoon, they're killed in this battle. So now we have multiple casualties of David's failure to fight in this war. We have Bathsheba, we have the messengers, we have Uriah, we have the other soldiers, we have those who are grieving the loss of said soldiers. And so David's sin begins to afflict more and more people. Sin is is something like like a dragon. You have to kill it while it's young and weak. Uh, Take out the sword of the Spirit and kill the dragon within you before it grows, before its scales toughen, uh, before its wings sprout, before it breathes fire, before it comes back and destroys the village. You have to slay the dragon of sin before its consequences get worse. I have a friend a pastor friend of mine, he has a wonderful quote about sin. I'll quote him. His name's Pastor Greg. Pastor Greg says, Sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. And that is exactly right. It always takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you wanted to pay. And so the collateral damage can be huge. Now, returning to our main text here, Paul then says um, in the next line, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, verse 6. So if you're not moved to fight against sin for the sake of your brother, at least consider your own life and the damage it brings to you. Uh, let's, let's put it like this, shall we? You are today the product of your failure to fight yesterday, right? Does that make sense? Like some, of, some of the, the very issues that you struggle with today, some of the very, the very calamities that your life has to deal with today is because because you failed to fight sin last year. Yeah? Is that right? Yeah, of course that's right. Because we're the product of all of our decisions and our choices over time. 
Uh, we are today very much the product of our choices and decisions that we made yesterday and, and yesteryear and so on and so forth. Well, um, think about this. Paul is warning the Thessalonians here that the Lord is an avenger and all of these things as we warned you beforehand. Now, let's not be confused here because, because um, there's two kinds of judgment that God can bring into our lives. The first kind is the eternal judgment. And because we're Christians, because we have grace, because we have Christ, because we have the blood of the cross, praise be to God, we, we do not have the eternal judgment of his wrath coming to us. That has been taken from us and for us on the cross, right? Yes. And yet at the same time, there's the reality of temporal chastisements that the Lord does allow us to suffer. If we do wrong in this life, we often have to suffer the actual repercussions later on. That's true. Temporal chastisements. And Paul says, you don't want that. Um, I mentioned Calvin and Hobbes the other day, and apparently there's a bunch of other Calvin and Hobbes fans out there, because a lot of you said you liked my illustration. So I'm going to use another one, I'm seeing some nodding to the heads right now. Do you remember Calvin and Hobbes where um, Calvin doesn't want to do his homework and so he makes a time machine out of a cardboard box. Do you remember this, this series of cartoons? And uh, it's, it's a pretty funny exchange between, between Calvin and Hobbes because Calvin says that future Calvin is going to do his homework. So he doesn't do his homework. And he goes through the time machine, and now he's future Calvin. But, but future Calvin is, is <laughs> has just as much agony as his heart as past Calvin because Future Calvin is spited by past Calvin's failure to act. So the homework still isn't done. Now this little joke is kind of spilled into the Everhard family because sometimes I'll ask one of my kids to do a chore. I'll say, hey, Elijah, can you take out the trash? And Elijah will say, don't worry, future Elijah will take out the trash. And I say, well, present Elijah is going to be taken out to the woodshed if future Elijah doesn't have it done, Right? And that's actually kind of a profound concept if you think about it. Th just entertain this thought with me just for a moment. Think about future iterations of yourself. And Paul says the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Future you doesn't want to deal with the temporal chastisements of your failure to fight against your sin now, does it? No. I mean, let's just take an example like sloth. I'm not going to use sexual immorality because we already used it a little bit last week. But take the example of sloth. Sloth is a passion, isn't it? Sloth is a lust. What kind of a, what kind of a passion is sloth? Well, it's a, it's a passion for nothing. It's a lust for laziness. Uh, it's a lust for inactivity. And so let's think about future you here just for a moment now. It's one thing for you to experience some, uh, some uh, sloth over the weekend. Let's say it's a rainy weekend. Okay, no big deal. But if you carry that out over a year, if you carry that out over five years, and in future you continues to be slothful and passive and idle, then what about the most important iteration of yourself, which is to come? That's the, that's the you that is going to stand before the Lord when he returns. What about that future you? What about future you at age 70 or 30 years from now, whatever age you are today, that has carried on a pattern of sloth year after year and decade after decade? What will you be then? And so Paul, I think here, is urging you to consider 
the most important iteration of your future self, which is you standing before the Lord. I mean, isn't that the, pur- the purpose of verse 13 in chapter 3? Remember that? Why are we praying all these things? So that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints, right? So that's future you at the return of the Lord. That's the one that matters. That's the iteration of yourself that is most important. And so you fight today to become the person that you can be then. Now, finally, I want to close up here with the glory of victory in verse 7. Let's finish up here. For the Lord has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Okay. So anytime you go to war, you do well to consider the costs. You do well to consider the collateral damage. You also do very well to consider whether or not the fight is a noble fight. Is this the right thing? Is this the battle I should be engaging in? In in verse 7, Paul says, absolutely so. And the reason is not that you volunteered for this, but the reason is because God has called you to holiness. See that? You didn't volunteer for this. You were, you were, in a sense, drafted into this battle. The Lord has called you for this. And he is optimally worthy of you fighting and striving for holiness. Now, we mentioned last week that this only comes about by the strength that is provided by the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so the essence of this war, the glory of victory, comes down to this concept of purity that he mentions here in verse 7. Now, what is purity? Well, purity, as you know, is the freedom from contamination. You may think of water, for instance, as being purified water, or you may think uh, in terms of metallurgy as a, as a metal that is purified uh, from its from its contaminants or impurities here. But, but the kind of purity that Paul is stressing in verse 7 is a purity where? It's purity of the heart. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, says, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. So you have a heart, right? You don't have two. You don't have two hearts. You don't have one heart that's for the Lord and one heart that's, that's for other things. Nor can you take that one heart and split it in half and divide your affections. But, but instead, purity of heart is to will one thing. What is it? What is the one thing that you can will, according to Kierkegaard, that brings about the maximal purity of the heart such that God is glorified? Well, it's that, the, the one thing that you have to love above all things else is the glory of God. That's it. That is the highest end. Stephen Charnock, one of the Puritans, talks about the expulsive power of the new affection in the heart. And what he means by that is when the heart truly begins to love and savor and magnify the worth of God, that love tends to have an expulsive power. In other words, it, it shuts out everything else. It pushes out all of its rival claimants to the throne. And that's exactly right. It's exactly right. Look, this, this, is the, this is the sum of everything I've said in the last, the last two sermons, okay? 
Your heart is, is desperately going to want to be happy. Every human heart is. And you're going to go after all of the things in your life that you think are going to make you happy. And many people do. But, but something has happened in the heart of the Christian. This changed everything. It's a game changer. What has changed everything? Well, what has changed everything is that God himself has become the glorious center of all of our desires and all of our affections so that it's true that the more we love God, the more we have a zeal for his honor, the more we have, the more we have a, a desire to give him praise and thanks, then that love tends to have this expulsive power of all of the rivals to the throne. May he be glorified in our hearts both now and forever. May that be your motive and your power for holiness. Let's go ahead and stand up. To- Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, And you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.